This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I'd like to start by sharing a, a personal story. So all scientists have, I think, a memory, uh, a story that they can go back to when they think about how they became interested in science, and I wanted to share mine. This is mine here. These are baby leatherback turtles that are hatching from a nest not far away from where I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. And when I was a child there, I always found fascinating that these animals are coming out of the nest and they haven't been to turtle school and they know exactly where to go. <laughs> They're beelining it towards the ocean. There's something really uh, profound happening here also, very important for the turtle but invisible to our eyes which is that these turtles are forming a memory. They're forming a memory of this beach. These are leatherback turtles. They grow up to be about the size of a Volkswagen, about nine feet long. And they will travel the world's oceans. And decades later, when they have to make what is perhaps the most important decision in a turtle's life, which is where it's going to lay its eggs, it will remember this beach because that's where it was born. And it'll come back to it and lay its eggs at that place. So with that, I'd like to uh, coarse-grain behaviors and, and essentially group them into innate or hardwired behaviors like this animal's capacity to know to go towards the ocean when they're born, and experiential memories like their capacity to remember this specific beach and come back to it. Now, innate behaviors are facilitated by the developmental program that leads to the formation of the neural circuit architectures, and experiential memories are facilitated by a pretty complex interplay between that architecture that develops and the environment that the animal is experiencing, what the animal is seeing. But I want to emphasize that both of them are ultimately facilitated by the architecture of the nervous system. So what do I mean by the architecture of the nervous system? And this is essentially what I mean. If you look at a mouse hippocampus, for example, you'll see this incredibly and exquisite organization of the neurons. This is actually imaged here using a technique called Brainbow by Jeff Lickman at Harvard. And this organization raises all sorts of interesting questions. One of them, which my lab is interested on, is how is it that this organization is actually established? And in thinking about how this organization is established, if you take, for example, the case of the human brain, you have about 80 billion neurons. That's, about, that's more neurons in, the, in a healthy human brain that you have uh, stars in the Milky Way. And about 100 trillion synapses. And during development, you have hundreds of millions of neurons almost simultaneously during development specifying fate growing out axons, connecting to each other, finding each other in a very specific way to lay out this amazing architecture. So how does that happen? What are the organizing principles that rules the, this, this organization that ultimately underpin human behaviors? Now, we look at this question, and we don't do so in, in, uh, in turtles or humans or mice, actually. We do so in a worm. It's a tiny nematode called C. elegans. It's over here. One of the characteristics that, that C. elegans has that we really like is that it's transparent. So it allows us to look at the organization of the nervous system, which is very finely organized, as you can see here. Now, I want to acknowledge that C. elegans is far simpler than, than a healthy human brain. So instead of 100 billion neurons, C. elegans has exactly 302 neurons. And instead of 100 trillion synapses, C. elegans has approximately 7,000 synapses. So some of you might be wondering, how is it that we can extract any useful information out of such a simple system that will tell us anything useful about a complex organ like the human brain? And to address this, I'd like to use a quote by Diderot that said, a worm is only a worm, but that only means that the marvelous complexity of its organization is hidden from us by its extreme smallness. Now, I'm not as eloquent as Diderot, so I'll say it in a wordier way. When nature finds a solution to a problem, 
it recycles that solution over and over again. So the fundamental principles that allows for the proper functioning of the nervous system in this tiny worm are not unlike the fundamental principles that facilitate the functioning of our own brains. And, what, and th to exemplify that, I'll just give a few examples. Studies done in this worm by other groups, ranging from the development of neurons like sulfate specification or axon guidance, to uh, fundamental physiology having to do with the biogenesis of neurotransmitters or neurotransmitter release, how neurons talk to each other, to even systems levels examination of sensory perception and behavior, all done in this nematode have actually shed light on important and fundamental aspects about how our own brains and brains in higher metasolans work. So it's actually, it's really true that evolution kind of conserves these principles. So using that as a foundation, we wanted to to essentially examine this question of how this nervous system comes together. And both our studies and the studies that I just mentioned benefited from the fact that this is also the only animal for which we have a wiring diagram. Now, we're hoping this is going to change soon, and you're going to hear other talks today that are working very hard to make this you know, I think of the past, and we're very happy that, that that's the case. But today, this is the only animal for which we have that wiring diagram. So what is the wiring diagram? It's the ability to know where each neuron is, essentially the morphology of the neuron, and what that neuron is connecting to. And we use this wiring diagram to examine two fundamental questions. One of them is, how is it that the brain of this animal is organized? And the second one is, how, is the, how does this organization comes out during development. Now, we've had the wiring diagram for about 30 years. The, the first wiring diagram was done in 1986. And we still have these two questions that we need to address. And I'll explain what we know and what we don't know in the next slide. So the way that that wiring diagram was originally done was that somebody took, a, a group of scientists led by John White, took this animal and essentially fixed it and sliced it like a salami. So imagine that you're slicing all over the animal here, and then you get these, these uh, cross-sections, and then they did electron microscopy on those cross-sections, and by segmenting each of the neurons, which we, we are putting here in different colors, by hand, this is 1986, they segmented them by hand, they were able to recreate the connectivity map for every single cell. Now, this was, this was incredibly powerful for the field, and it has benefited our studies, but... I just want to emphasize that all of this was, it wasn't digitalized. It was all done by hand. So you could go neuron by neuron, and you could kind of tell the shape and who it connected to, but we didn't have a systems-level understanding about how this happened. Until recently, where uh, Scott Emmons at Albert Einstein University and his student, Steve Cook, actually went in and did the same segmentation that John White did 30 years ago, but with computers. What that allows us to do is to be able to know who's neighboring who in a quantitative way, in a way that we can actually analyze. And we can analyze using tools not unlike the tools that are being used by companies like Twitter and Facebook to, inter to understand interactions between human beings. So our collaboration included computational scientists, Smita and Alex, and what they did is that they took that data and, and we worked together with them in using clustering algorithms, again, similar to the clustering network algorithms that are used to understand uh, uh, personal interactions, and cluster neurons with similar contact profiles, so essentially neurons that are contacting each other as they're traveling together in the nervous system in fascicles, and, and did iterative clustering to understand how, how that structure of the brain is organized. And you end up with, with essentially a flow diagram like this, where in one corner you have all the neurons, and these clustering algorithms iteratively bring them together. So this different clustering of the different subgroups of neurons that eventually cluster into these larger families, 
what it represents, what underlies that, is real biology of how these neurons are interacting with each other. Real biology that, we, that was inaccessible before we were able to digitize these, these programs. And we're capable of overlaying that on top of the original EM micrographs. Each of these uh, pseudocolors here that we have placed represent a community of neurons that, that are interacting together more than the other neurons. And I'm going to just walk you through the brain of the animal, and this is going to be playing a movie, so that you can see how the different communities are actually snaking and how they relate to each other and how they come together. As this movie plays, I'll explain that what I'm showing you here is actually reproducible across the animals for which we have connectomes. So this has been a really fun project because we were able to um, work with the computational biologist and inform the algorithms with the biology and use the algorithms to inform our own biology. We were able to find four main bundles that account for 83% of the whole connectome. So now we have a pretty good idea about how these different brain regions are organized. And these neighborhoods, I'll just mention that they reveal important biological insights. So there's a reason why they're organized this way that have to do with development and function. And I'm, you know, I could give a one-hour talk about this, so I'm going to use one example to, to, to present this. And I'll talk about how these neighborhoods led to insights about how this organization is actually established during development. And this gets to a fundamental question that is a blind spot in the field, which is how do you go from a group of cells in an embryo to this organized connectome in the worm? And this, so this is essentially a question that we wanted to understand. And the reason that this has been a blind spot is that for many organisms, this part of the development happens inside, like for example in mammals, it happens inside the uterus. So the, the organisms are essentially inaccessible. In C. elegans, they lay eggs, so the organism is accessible, but there were a number of challenges that have prevented in the past like four or five decades to image embryonic neurodevelopment. So this is a pretty large blind spot. We have this information, but we didn't know how this was happening. The reason that imaging neurodevelopment in C. elegans was challenging were multifold. One of them is that embryos, when they're inside the egg, they're, very quick, they're moving very quickly. So if you're looking, for example, at the development of a single neuron using even the fastest microscopy that we had available at the time, which is spinning disk microscopy for the aficionados in the audience, this is a single neuron, and you get a motion blur where it looks like four neurons because the animal is moving and you're taking different pictures, so it looks like you're taking four neurons there. The other problem that is hard to capture in an image is the animals just die. So when you're imaging for prolonged periods of time, which is what you want to do to be able to capture these different neurodevelopmental events, the many of the embryos just die, so you end up taking snapshots at different points in development that you have to stitch together later. And neurons are actually pretty thin. These are they're near the diffraction limit of light. So, and, and they're traveling, you know, they're traveling in ways that are not convenient for imaging. They're not traveling in planes. They don't care about our imaging needs. They're actually snaking in through the whole nervous system. So we needed methods that allow us to have good resolution, not just in two dimensions, but in all three dimensions. So to address this, we established a collaboration with, with a fabulous microscopist, Harry Shroff, and his team of scientists. And Harry essentially, you know, we had these discussions together, and, we, and, and, and he came up with the design of this microscope. I won't go into the nuts and bolts about how these microscopes work, but what I will tell you is the aspects of this microscope that makes it usable for our studies. This microscope is called a light sheet microscope, which essentially means that instead of imaging a single point of light like many other microscopes do, it creates a whole sheet of light. So it's much faster than, other, than, than regular microscopes because you're, it's like, like in Star Trek when they scan you versus scanning you point by point. 
So, so it's faster. It's, it, because it's faster, it exposes the animal to less light, so less photo, phototoxicity. Also, the way that light is generated to be able to image these animals exposes the animals to less light. And the other aspect of this is that for, for the microscopies in the audience or people that have done microscopy, they will recognize that when you take an, a three-dimensional image of an object in a microscope, the, the resolution in, in, in X, Y is always really good, but when you turn it, the resolution in C is always bad. And that has to do with just the physics of, of, of light, which I'm not going to go into. But I will say that X, Y, and C is relative to how you're standing. So you guys right now are in my Z, but if I was standing this way, that would be my Z. So if I, were, if I had two images where the C varied, then I could combine them to essentially have an isotropic image. So if I, could, if I look at this object like this, this is my X, Y, and then I look at it this way, and this is my X, Y, and I combine those two images, it's, it's the same resolution in all three axes. And this is essentially what we're doing with this microscope because we have two cameras. This one, this one illuminates, this one image, and then they take turns. You end up with two images that you can then fuse. And the, the Z of this axis is different from this one. So again, I'm, I'm discussing this superficially because I know Phil Keller will discuss this in more detail. So we have this microscope working in my lab, and this is a slide that I put here just to acknowledge two institutions, the Marine Biological Laboratories and the University of Puerto Rico, which were meeting places where, where um, technologies like, like and microscopies like, like people from Harris Group and biologists from my group were able to come together and exchange ideas. And I think these places are going to be increasingly more important for, uh, for interdisciplinary collaborations necessary to address these problems. So what can we do this, with this? So this is actually uh, the brain of the animal here in an embryo, the tail, the head, and that's the brain, that ring that you're seeing there. And I'm going to play a movie where we can actually see the development of this animal in real time. And you can, this is, I mean, this is, as a biologist, this is spectacular that we can see this. You're going to see the animal starts to move. It starts to twitch as the nervous system comes online. But even when it's twitching, you can get very crisp images. Now, if you look at subsets of neurons, which we're going to do here using subcellular markers, or, or markers that are more restricted, you can still see the, you can see neurites, specific neurites growing into the brain of the animal. This is all taken, again, in live animals. And essentially, you can stop it at any time, and you can rotate it. So, it, so I'm doing two-dimensional projections because I'm using a screen, but these are, these are three-dimensional data sets. You can see the resolution is very good in all angles that you look at it, and you can continue the movie. So this gives us unprecedented access to the events that are leading to the formation of this nerve ring. And then we had another collaboration that was really enabling, which is that in C. elegans, we know the lineage of every single cell. We've known that since, since the animal was developed as a, as a model organism. That's how the original studies of programmed cell death were done. And this person, this is Sirong Bao, he's a scientist at Sloan Kettering, who's a computational biologist and a developmental biologist. And what I'm going to be playing here is an embryo that is in a four-cell stage, now, this is like playing a movie that you know what's going to happen because we know the lineage. So we know for each one of these cells, we know who their progeny is going to be because those studies have been done before. But what he did is that he trained a computer to be able to recognize this in real time. So as the animal is developing, the computer can keep track of all of these nuclei, and it knows what each cell is going to become. So why is this important to us? It's important for two reasons. One of them is because when we're marking neurons, as we're going to be doing here, we can tell their identity because if we have nuclei that we're labeling in the background in red, then we can keep, we can keep the identity of every, every single one of these neurons that are emerging. But the other aspect is that we have an internal coordinate system. As the neurons are growing out and crossing the different nuclei, we know 
where, the, where each neuron is. So if we take different embryos and we're imaging different embryos, we can overlay them because we essentially have a multi-point internal coordinate system. Does that make sense? Okay, so, so what can we do with that? And here I'm gonna summarize um, the work of a postdoc in my lab, Mark Moyle. This is five years of work summarizing one slide. So essentially what, we can, what Mark did is he was interested in identifying the pioneering neurons that lead to the formation, that trailblaze the formation of the brain of the animal. So he looked in embryos, he labeled all membranes, and he found the first membranes that are formed that are part of the brain. He traced them back to these cells here. He, he, we're pseudo-coloring here so you can see them. Then if he looked at the nuclei, he can actually identify the, by name and last name those specific cells. He, then he, he can image, as I mentioned before, the development of the brain. So he can take and, these cells and kill them. And the hypothesis is if you kill them because they're the first cells, if the first cells are important, then you shouldn't be able to develop a brain. And we get these brainless animals in which we cannot see. Essentially, the brain is greatly abrogated, so these neurons are actually very important. And it turns out when we look back in the maps that we have created with the computational biologists that these pioneer cells are actually the cells that are... <coughs> Uh, that are here in purple, and they're, they're like seam cells. They're, they're, like, they're cells that are holding together the whole nerve ring. And with that, I'd like to, to essentially bring into your attention how we can both look at the, how the brain is organized and how the organization is established during development. And I'll finish by saying that what we have been able to do with this and our aspiration is to create what will be the first map of metal-soil neurodevelopment for any animal. So we're systematically tracking all of the decisions of these neurons and creating this virtual embryo that allows examination of all of these decisions in the context of the developing embryo, which we think will be enabling for neuroscience. And with that, I'll finish by thanking the people that did the work, this motley crew, and you for listening to me today. Thank you. So I'm going to be talking about the complexity of the single cells that make up the brain. Um, we've heard a lot about um, neuronal populations and how they're organized, which is quite amazing. But if you go, if you zoom in and look at any one of those cells, whether they're astrocytes or neurons or microglia within um, the brain, inside those cells is a plethora of um, subcellular organelles um, that are playing a huge role in how the brain is operating. Um, I just want to draw your attention to some of these organelles who's, who, uh, who, if they don't function properly, can lead to many of the neurodegenerative diseases that we're aware of. So for instance, mitochondria that you can see here, um, defects in mitochondria lead to Parkinson's, many of the Parkinson's disorders, uh, lysosomes, uh, proteins that comprise some of these lysosomes are responsible for frontal temporal disorders, and the endoplasmic reticulum, which, you're, which you will hear a lot about today, uh, is uh, very much at play in um, w where mutations in proteins that shape that organelle underlies uh, a variety of spastic paraplegia uh, disorders. So in order for us to really get, I think, at this neurodegenerative aspect of the brain and how it ages and deteriorates, we need to understand how these organelles that comprise the cellular components, which is the unit of um, the, the whole system of the brain, are um, organized. So this is a classic transmission uh, electron micrograph, a 90 nanometer slice through a cell to really reinforce the complexity of these organelles. What we want to know is uh, more information about 
the three-dimensional organization of these organelles and how proteins are dynamically distributed. That's one thing we want to know, and I'm going to be talking about other layers of information uh, that we're now beginning to get in terms of the organization of this system thanks to high-end microscopy technology. So let's start with the 3D organelle shapes. Um, this is, a, as, I show, as I mentioned, is a transmission electron micro, micrograph slice of 90 nanometers. What that means is within that 90 nanometer uh, slab, you have no Z information. Everything's flattened. But thanks to technologies like the focused ion beam scanning milling uh, system that in combination with uh, scanning electron microscopy, we can now slice through the cell at very th thin sections, four nanometer in this case. And uh, we've used that in collaboration with Harold's uh, beautiful FibSyn system at Genelia to begin slicing through parts of the cell to reconstruct particular organelles in order to understand how these organelles are shaped in 3D and how they communicate with other organelles. What you're looking at here is just the fine, complex architecture of the endoplasmic reticulum in a small, uh, the edge of a cell. In this panel right here, uh, what you're looking at is the confocal volume that we've sliced uh, in what you would see if you were using a confocal microscope. So you can see there's a huge difference between uh, the reality of this organelle as revealed by imaging at this very fine three-dimensional um, architecture versus the typical image that you would get if you were using conventional uh, confocal microscopes. Now, we've been uh, working with uh, Harold to look in more detail at these organelles. Um, in this case, uh, we're looking at plasma membrane, mitochondria, ER, endosomes uh, that we can segment out as you mill through these slices. Um, this is a two micron volume of the cell, uh, not four nanometer voxels, uh, and you can color code each of these different organelles to see how they're arranged relative to each other. Now, the mitochondria that you can see here in green are intimately communicating with the ER, uh, which is shown in red, and there's a lot of crosstalk between these two organelles that's absolutely critical for calcium handling in the cell, uh, for reactive oxygen ex uh, exchange, as well as lipid and other types of communication. Well, how do we localize proteins uh, on these organelles? And the approach that we've been taking really builds from uh, really the 20 years or more of work that people have done using fluorescent protein technology, which allows you to tag proteins of interest and then look at how they're distributed. Now, in order for us to get high-resolution uh, protein as well as lipid distribution to um, understand the fine architecture in, these, uh, in a three-dimensional section of a cell, We've applied lattice light sheet microscopy developed by Eric uh, Betzik and colleagues uh, where essentially you take ultra-thin vessel beams uh, to create a thin 2D optical lattice which is then used as a sheet to pass through your cell of interest. Uh, what this allows is ultra-thin slicing through a cell. Um, which is at a much smaller scale than uh, big neuronal uh, slices, uh, sections. 
And because we're, we have such a thin light sheet uh, that's basically almost the same dimension as the XY lateral resolution that you get with the microscope, you have isotropic resolution. And again, it's, at low, it's relatively low to phototoxicity because it's a lattice sheet of light rather than a, a full sheet. So we combined uh, the lattice light sheet microscope with a, a, a point localization or palm-like imaging where individual molecules, in this case we're looking at lipid molecules that bind and then dissociate uh, from membranes and whenever they're bound uh, they create a spot on the surface of that membrane that we can fit uh, with very high accuracy by point uh, uh, PSF uh, centroid fitting. And when we do that, we can reconstruct the entire sort of uh, organelle distribution, map it out in 3D uh, through lattice light sheet imaging uh, with a combination of of, uh, plotting out all the individual distributions of these lipids that have been uh, using uh, super-resolution imaging docked in and, uh, um, and put in place. Now, now that we have an image of all these organelles, uh, and this you can see mitochondria here, and this web-like structure represents the endoplasmic reticulum, we can now come in and dock in particular proteins of interest. I'm just going to zoom in on this area here because what we're particularly interested in or were interested in in this study was how proteins that are part of the endoplasmic reticulum, uh, which is this large structure that expands throughout the cytoplasm as this tubular meshwork, how it's organized. And so what we can do with this technology is superimpose our distributions of fluorescent proteins that we've specifically genetically engineered and tagged onto our uh, a fluorescently acquired image using this lattice light sheet system um, to dock in where these proteins are localized. And this is an example where we have, again, all of the membranes of the of this cell that have been painted out, if you will, uh, using the lipid, our lipid probe and single molecule super resolution imaging. And we're now correlating it with a diffraction limited image of sex 61 beta uh, tagged with an M emerald, a fluorescent probe. Um, And you can see how they align. This is exciting to us because it really sets the stage for beginning to investigate a whole slew of different proteins and how they localize within this cellular system. So we think that FIPSIM and lattice light sheet paint or palm-like uh, uh, correlative uh, approaches will allow us to really gain deeper in- information about how all of these organelles uh, are shaped in three dimensions and how different proteins might distribute on them. But one of the challenges that we still face is how many organelles are arranged relative to each other in a living cell context. In particular, that's important for understanding how different organelles are contacting each other and communicating with each other. We know, for instance, the endoplasmic reticulum, which is, which is um, this sort of snake-like structure that you can see in this EM image, is contacting virtually every other organelle within the cell and communicating with those organelles through lipid trafficking, ROS, uh, uh, essentially um, exchange of reactive oxygen species, calcium signaling, 
many other types of communication is going on between these organelles. And our problem with trying to understand that is that we haven't been able to look simultaneously at all of these organelles in a living cell context. We can see them clearly with electron microscopy, but if we do fluorescent time-lapse imaging, we're limited to imaging two or three of these, of these organelles at, at one time because of this problem of overlap in emission spectra in, among the different fluorescent proteins that are available. So here we have classic fluorescent proteins um, that have different emission spectrum, CFP, GFP, YFP. Um, these are the emission spectra for each of these different fluorescent probes. And the problem is their emission spectrum is overlapping. And what that means is that if you tag a particular organelle with different fluorescent probes, like the ones that I just mentioned, which are the most widely used fluorescent probes, and then you image, um, essentially, you go across the emission spectrum to look at, the, at, at any particular wavelength of light, which population of uh, organelle you've, you've um, uh, looked at, you can see that you have overlap at any particular wavelength. So that means if you were imaging, for instance, at 438, you'd see three different, um, you, you would not be able to distinguish mitochondria, ER, and lysosomes from each other. It would just be one big blur. And hence, you could not distinguish how these different organelles are behaving relative to each other. So to overcome that challenge, uh, two postdocs in the lab um, decided to employ a technology called multispectral imaging to try to unravel this overlapping emission spectrum. And the a strategy that they used was essentially take, if you know the, the emission spectra of each of these different fluorophores, you can then query and observe pixel spectrum that's a combination of one or more of these fluorophores and then use uh, linear unmixing to decipher what combination of and in what abundance uh, any uh, one or uh, two or more of these fluorophores would give rise to this particular spectrum. And using that, we can at each pixel of our image unmix to determine which fluorophore is giving rise to the signal that we're observing at that pixel. And so we've combined that with lattice light sheet microscopy to be able to image simultaneously six different organelles within the cell over time. In order to do that, we've essentially introduced six different laser lines at, uh, that cover the, the visible spectrum. Uh, that allows us to excite the fluorophore that we've tagged on each one of these different organelles. And then we do our linear unmixing algorithms to determine each uh, the specific spectra associated uh, with each organelle. And this is what you can see in the case of these six different organelles that we've um, introduced fluorescent tags for. Now, this is in a single cell, so we can superimpose all of these signals on top of each other to simultaneously see in a three-dimensional space, because we're using that lattice light sheet to move through the whole volume of the cell, how all of these organelles are distributed. Now, with this technique, we can begin to zone in on uh, really specific measurements in terms of organelle distribution, localization, um, uh, essentially con uh, connectivity. 
This is just a um, set of values for um, the number of organelles that each of these uh, different uh, populations of organelles represent. So for instance, on average, in the cell that we're looking at, there's about 89 lysosomes, uh, 186 peroxisomes, 157 lipid droplets. Um, the ER occupies by far the largest volume in this cell among all of these different organelles. It's about 30 times the size of the Golgi apparatus, uh, which is involved in the secretory pathway, eight to nine times the size uh, of, the, of the mitochondria, which is involved in energy production within the cell. Now, we can also come in and segment these individual organelles to look at how they are connected to each other, how they're contacting each other, in order to begin to understand the communication, the cross-communication or cross-talk in activity um, that we know is so important for how cells are operating and uh, communicating with other cells in their environment. Uh, For instance, the endoplasmic reticulum controls the secretory pathway uh, together with the Golgi apparatus. It's what's secreting the the perineural network that um, we heard earlier about. So it's critical for us to really understand how these organelles uh, behave relative to each other. And from these types of segmented images, we can create what uh, we've been able to describe what we call the organelle interactome, where we just measure the pairwise contacts between these different organelles um, in, in, um, in our uh, images of these cells. And from that, we can see the frequency of communication that different organelles have with each other. You can see here that the ER is by far the most communicative of all of the organelles. It's contacting everyone. Importantly, if you look at a single cell over time, you can see that this organelle interactome is conserved over fairly uh, significant periods of time, and that is um, despite the fact that any particular contact that we see is relatively transient. I should emphasize that this interactome changes dramatically if we perturb the cell in in different ways. We can depolymerize microtubules or starve cells in different ways, and we dramatically change the way these organelles are interacting with each other. Now, this is a movie where we've segmented out the mitochondria uh, as an example of an organelle that is intimately communicating with the endoplasmic reticulum. On the right-hand side represents the surface, uh, all of the surface sites of mitochondria where we see ER signal. Um, So the ER is wrapping around the surface of the mitochondria uh, and intimately communicating with virtually all of those mitochondrial elements that we see in the cell. This contact, we think, is what's... uh, uh, We think there's calcium flux between the ER and mitochondria. That calcium is playing an important role for mitochondrial output, how much energy is being produced by the mitochondria. We also know there's lipid and cholesterol being transferred across these uh, contact sites. And importantly, reactive oxygen, uh, ROS, reactive oxygen species, is being uh, trafficked across those contacts, uh, which could play a big role in the uh, disulfide bond formation and protein remodeling occurring in the endoplasmic reticulum. Now let's focus in on the uh, the ER for a second. Um, It occupies 25% of the cell cytoplasm. 
We can measure that using our light, lattice light sheet three-dimensional uh, three reconstruction. What is interesting is that if we look at, we plot out the position of the ER over a 15-minute time period, which you can see in this movie, what we find is that the ER has pretty much explored the entire uh, cytoplasm over just 15 minutes. So it is a very um, dynamic organelle that has uh, lots of uh, capability of communicating. Now in my final two minutes or one minute, um, I've got to, I want to take you through how fast these organelles uh, can uh, move. Uh, we know that uh, uh, they can, the, the ER has the capability of exploring that cytoplasm. Let's look at its dynamics at higher resolution. Uh, we can do this using a turf sim system. Uh, we can see these tubule um, matrices move incredibly fast. Uh, interestingly, uh, the tubes themselves undergo an oscillatory activity uh, that's ATP and GTP uh, dependent, so it's not just thermally driven. Um, and finally, we can actually come in and start mapping out individual proteins that move or diffuse along the surface of the endoplasmic reticulum. That's what you're seeing here. Each of these yellow spots represent a halo-tagged protein that is associated with the membrane of the ER, and we can begin to map out the trajectories of these proteins. And that's shown here for another ER resident protein, SEC61 uh, beta. Uh, if you sum up all of these trajectories, you see that these proteins, and this is a transmembrane protein you're looking at, will explore the whole surface of that ER freely. Now, uh, in my final uh, movie here, I just want to show, here's an example where we're mapping out um, a protein that actually interacts. It's on the surface of the ER, but it is part of a tethering complex that brings the ER close to the mitochondria. And what we can see is when we track these individual molecules as they diffuse across the surface of the ER, we can see that as they move across the area of the ER that's in close proximity of mitochondria, they, they slow down significantly, um, consistent with a transient interaction of, uh, of this tethering protein with a target protein on uh, mitochondria. So with that, I want to end and say that this field is really um, being significantly impacted by the high-resolution technology that's now available um, that scans from you know, electron microscopy up to the fast uh, imaging technology. Uh, people in my lab have been greatly impacted by the uh, physicists at Genelia, Eric Betzik and Harold in particular, uh, who've really provided uh, the technology that allows us to, be, to do this type of work. Thank you. Since, you know, um, life sciences are always trying to make the best use of light for many different, different purposes. Uh, for instance, uh, we use uh, um, X-ray beam for crystallography and infrared light um, for um, vibrational spectroscopy. Um, but most um, biologists use visible light. Okay. And the chromophore is a structure unit so that um, absorbs certain visible light. And it is responsible for color, and in many cases it has uh, the pi conjugation system, and single and double bonds um, appear alternately so that pi electrons can be delocalized. So electrons uh, oscillate or sing on the chromophore, and that's uh, quite important for the interaction with the visible light. 
And my laboratory is engaged in technological innovation in biomedicine and principally using fluorescent proteins. And I'd like to introduce to you so the most classical、um, fluorescent protein I call a GFP. And a、uh, long time ago, so in 1962, Osama Shimomura discovered protein、um, from the light emitting organ、um, of the jellyfish. And just 30 years later, in 1992, its DNA was cloned by、uh, dark pressure. And in 1994, so the heterologous expression of E. coli GFP was achieved by Marty Shorty at Columbia.、Okay. And this is the primary structure of E. coli GFP, just 238 amino acids. So, there is no chromophore that I、uh, defined a moment ago in the peptide. But from these three amino acids, castelin, tyrosine, glycine, so three reactions occur spontaneously.、Okay? And cyclization, dehydration, and oxidation reactions to make the pi conjugation system. So, this is the GFP's chromophore,、um, which absorbs blue light.、Okay? But this slide doesn't say anything about its fluorescence. So now, so this is a crystal structure we call a GFP and a beta bottle structure. And 11 stranded beta bottle with one other helix inside. And the chromophore is formed on the helix. And the bottle is very、uh, robust. And the chromophore is packed inside. And it takes a very rigid structure. So that explains why、uh, GFP's fluorescence quantum yield is very high.、Okay. And the mutagen studies. Done by、uh, Dr. Roger Tan, so、uh, produced quite a few、uh, color variants and more useful and brighter.、Okay. And I stayed in Roger's lab from 95 to 98, and I used、uh, CFP and YFP and as the donor and acceptor for FRET so to create so the、um, genetically encoded indicator for calcium ion chameleons, as uh, Mark um, mentioned kindly.、Okay. So now I, I like to discuss why calcium imaging is so interesting and appealing.、Okay. So there should be two major reasons. So, first,、um, calcium signaling is very so dynamic.、Okay. So, the concentration of the free calcium ion changes so greatly. So, it should be fun so to uh, uh, observe,、uh, for instance, here calcium oscillations. The second、uh, So, due to the endogenous and very abundant calcium buffering systems, we can express a huge amount of calcium probes so without affecting intracellular calcium dynamics very much.、Okay? So, we can increase signals,、uh, signal, to, signal to noise ratio.、Okay? So, here we、um, expressed a large quantity of chameleon and excitatory neurons of the forebrain, mouse, and we shine the skinless head with excitation light. And to get these calcium data out and through the intertuscal and video rate and for more than 30 minutes.、Okay. So these readouts、um, reflect so spontaneous neuronal activities and which are composed of multiple oscillations of different frequencies and very symmetrical. And the mouse was half awake, so when we gave a、um, um, visual stimulation, so we saw an evoked response in the back,、okay, in the visual cortex. Now, back to、so、this slide. So, GFP is chromophore.、Um, it has a phenol ring,、so、which comes from tyrosine residue.、Okay. Well,、um, almost all of the、um, fluorescent proteins now available、so、do have phenol rings in their chromophores.、Okay. 
and exceptions, the CFP and the BFP, so they have indole ring, imidazole ring coming from tryptophan and histidine. But uh, phenol ring containing chromophore is most uh, common. And there is um, an equilibrium um, between protonated and uh, ionized state of the phenol hydroxyl group. Okay. And they um, absorb 400 and 480 nanometer light. And in many cases, so the ionized form are um, fluorescent. Okay. So uh, therefore, um, GFP basically has um, a bimodal absorption spectrum. Okay. And now, uh, circular permutation. Okay. And a long time ago, just serendipitously, uh, Jeff Beard and in Rouge's lab found so this site, 144, 145, so the midpoint of the beta strand number seven, so tolerate, so circular permutation. So circular permitted GFP can synthesize chromophore very well. And uh, the now, so the chromophore, uh, so the, the uh, equilibrium uh, is quite sensitive to a neighboring event such as uh, calcium dependent protein protein interaction. Okay, so this is the, the operational principle of GCAMP or Pericamp. Okay. So the point, very important point is that, so that here calcium binding changes absorption spectrum, not fluorescence quantum yield. Okay. So as a kind of a future perspective, so the GCAMP should be well combined with uh, photoacoustic imaging. Now, I have to say, uh, not only the jellyfish, but some of the Nidarian animals or marine animals so can produce um, quite similar frozen proteins. Okay? And uh, well, we have cloned many uh, new frozen proteins from those animals. And uh, well, by using uh, so these green red proteins, uh, we, uh, some time ago, we developed cell cycle probe. Okay? And we used um, the ubiquitin oscillator Okay, cell cycle dependent protolysis, so to create the cell cycle proof which labels individual nuclei in genome phase red and those in SD2M phases green. Uh, that's food. And the green and the red uh, indicate so the go and stop, so the S phase entry, so like a traffic signal. And when food was introduced into HERA cells, so um, derived from malignant tumor, uh, we observed cell cycle progression in real time at a single cell level. But when we did the same thing using a benign tumor-derived cell line, uh, we um, saw very clear contact inhibition. And upon reaching convert monorea, all of the cells became red and then uh, stopped so their proliferation. Okay. And we introduced scratch. And so some of the cells were turning green after some latent time. So they re-entered the cell cycle and to build the gap. Okay. And we prepared um, food transgenic mice. So this is a coronal section of an embryo. And in the brain, so neural stem cells had the green or red nuclei in the ventricular zone. But post-mitotic neurons had only red nuclei in the cortical plate. And the green and the red. Uh, signify cell proliferation and differentiation. And during the embryogenesis with time, so green to red ratio decreased. So the earlier the more um, proliferation, the later the more differentiation. And after the birth, so the red signal becomes predominant. But even in adult tissue, so we can identify very few green nuclei and the cells with the green nuclei correspond to tissue stem cells like a neural stem cells found in the dentate gyrus. Okay. 
And when we uh, um, used <coughs> zebrafish embryo, very transparent one, so we can obtain cell cycle profile in four dimensions. So this is a segmentation period embryo, and uh, side view and head and tail. And again, with time, green to red ratio decreased, but some magnetic organs like uh, retina and the brain, so very green. And in top view, in addition to two eyes, two eyes so we saw um, a nautical, so differentiating nautical. And in nautical, um, we discovered so the cell cycle transitions moved, trouble okay, from head to tail, uh, like this. So G1, this transition moved toward the tail. Okay. And um, we uh, think so the uh, cell cycle regulation in the nautical is linked to somatogenesis, uh, which is also um, characterized by head to tail progression of differentiation. Okay. But anyhow, it's quite very amazing so that we can visualize uh, the middle of the body from outside. So that's just because so the fish embryos are very transparent. Okay. And by contrast, mouse embryos, well, mammalian animals, well, including us, a little bit. Okay. Yes, uh, visible light scatters very much inside so our body, so like Na mentioned. Okay. So now, uh, tissue clarification. And a long time ago, uh, we discovered that so the membrane for Western blotting analysis became transparent when soaked in formora rare. And we knew that so the GFP beta bottle is very uh, tough, so rigid, and the tolerant of um, high concentration of rear. Okay. So we started so the creating um, revolution in 2011. So with our paper on scale A2, which is the first um, rear-based rear based, uh, aqueous solution for tissue clarification. Okay. And then it was followed by many uh, explosion of many new techniques. Okay. And also two years ago, uh, we reported some modification, scale S. Uh, scale S uh, contains sorbitol in, in addition to urea. And we verified that scale S can preserve uh, so the fluorescent signal um, also um, uh, outer structures, uh, so subcellular outer structures uh, like synapses. Okay. So I, I think so researchers, researchers should, should be aware of the critical trade-off between effective creating and the tissue signal preservation. Okay. And also we invented so the upscale method, so which enables three-dimensional immunohistochemistry. And um, some time ago, uh, the CIDO group um, at BSI uh, generated single APP nuclear mouse models of Alzheimer disease. Okay. And we uh, applied upscale method so to the brain of aged um, APP nuclear mice. And to visualize a beta prax, we used uh, Alexa 488 labeled um, antibody. And there was a um, brain okay, prepared from nine month old and APP nuclear mouse and very sparse. Okay. But in uh, 18 month old, so we saw, uh, we observed so many um, immunolabeled A beta plaques. And uh, yes, uh, in another experiment, uh, uh, we transcurrently perfused the entire vasculature with Texas lectin to label blood vessels with red fluorescence. And then we immunostained A beta plaques with green and to obtain so the 3D perspective, very comprehensive perspective of how a beta products interface with blood vessels. Okay. 
So then we took interest in the special association of a beta plex with microglial cells. Okay? And we applied so the dual color upscale uh, so to a brain cells prepared from APP Noki mouse. And we analyzed so the interaction between these two objects uh, by uh, light sheet microscopy observation. And uh, we measured uh, so the distance from each microglia center to, to the nearest plug edge okay, in the 3D space. And uh, these, uh, those uh, measurements should provide uh, the information about severity of plug neuritis, inflammatory state. For instance, so two neighboring plaques uh, with similar size, okay, but different association with microglia cells, very uh, direct contact versus uh, very isolated. Okay. So we think so, um, they suggest uh, acute neuritic state versus obsolete. Okay. And in a similar way, uh, we 3D imaged um, plaque uh, microglia association in uh, post-mortem brain samples of 80 patients um, uh, more than 50 years old. And in these three uh, brain samples, we uh, observed, detected very clear uh, quad plaques, green ones. And the quad plaques, quad plaques without and with microglial association. But in the remaining six brain samples, samples, uh, we didn't see any uh, not we didn't see any uh, quad plaques. So then we became interested in uh, diffuse plaques. So diffuse plaques are basically undetectable, not detectable in the two-dimensional image. But our new software can resize so the 3D reconstruction systematically and with different size, uh, different thickness. Okay. And that helped us to identify uh, diffuse plaques of different sizes. And the diffuse plaques are uh, be, uh, usually assumed to be very primitive and very isolated from any inflammatory cells. But we found, so most of them can show the sign of uh, neuritis with considerable um, uh, association with microglial cells. Okay. So clinically, uh, diffuse plaques are ambiguous, but potentially very, very important. Okay. And scale plus food, uh, we studied vascular niche okay, for neural stem cells in the dented jaws, and to label uh, uh, so neural stem cells or proliferative neural stem cells, we use the food uh, SD2M face marker, okay. and uh, blood vessels were labeled with uh, red. And uh, green nuclei, so the neural stem cells were indeed localized inside the dental gyrus, not outside of it. And we again uh, performed distance measurement in a three-dimensional space. We measured distance from each green nucleus so to the nearest blood vessel. Okay? And then uh, we came to a conclusion that the neural stem cells are more closely associated with uh, blood vessels, so them mature neurons. Okay. And Rusty has been saying, so um, adult hippocampal neurogenesis is upregulated by exposure to uh, enriched environment. And we performed a comparative experiment comparative experiment and uh, large-scale 3D reconstruction. And our data showed 
um, the, the enriched environment increased so the number or density of neural stem cells, but did not change so the, their association with blood vessels. So this is a comprehensive um, data, I think, I hope. Okay. All right, so the, this slide uh, is um, uh, well, uh, interplay between light and life. Okay. Uh, well, I remember that so the Roger Chen, uh, Roger uh, used to remind us uh, nature is very uh, kind to us, uh, to researchers, and uh, that nature still remains the best source of uh, bioimaging tools. Okay? And this is uh, my last slide, and only a scientist with uh, respect for nature would have been permitted to, to surpass it uh, in English, Japanese, and Chinese. Uh, thank you very much for attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.